The Hebrew word for salvation here in verse 1 means deliverance. It means to be delivered from the king's enemies. One commentator says that David is probably using this word as a way of showing how God would deliver him from his immediate enemies. David uses the poetic words here of whom shall I fear and whom shall I be afraid to point to the amazing but the amazing thing that God is when he's in our life. Because God is the light and our salvation, we have nothing to fear. Because he is the stronghold, there's nothing to be afraid of. Being afraid is one of the things that we dislike the most. Fear is one of those things that no one enjoys encountering. And there are many instances throughout life where fear becomes that main emotion that we may be sensing. And David is saying no matter what he's been through, no matter what we're going to go through, he's telling us that the Lord is that stronghold in our life. Verse 2, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Because God is that light and that salvation, because he is that stronghold we're able, to look at, we're, we're able to have a different outlook on what happens when the enemy comes at us. Because without the light and the salvation of God, we're relying on ourselves to deal with our enemies. We're relying on ourselves to be the security in this world. And after a while, that gets tiring. I'm a history nerd and one thing part of history that I love focusing on and love studying is World War II and in World War II the German army had the lightning war that they used to blitz across Europe but because they moved so quickly and because they did not listen to normal military tactics they quickly became they, they quickly exhausted all of their supplies. They quickly exhausted all of their resources that they had built up to advance into the Soviet Union. And because of that, they were not able to continue fighting the war. Our ability to keep up with what the devil throws at us is much like fighting a losing war. We do not have the strength in us to keep that endurance running. It may be for a little while we can keep up with, what, with what's being thrown at us. But after a while, the darkness does begin to creep in over us. But the Lord is the light and salvation. The Lord takes the darkness away. The Lord causes the evildoers to fall. He causes the evildoers to stumble. But the evildoers can grab a hold in our life if it's our own ability that we're putting our faith in. If it's people in our lives that we're trying to, trying to draw strength from. If it's things of this world that we're trying to draw strength from. But if we run to the one who created all things, if we run to our Father in heaven, 
This is why it is so vital that our walk with God be on his timetable and not our timetable. Our timetable is how we want our desires to go. John talked last week in James about quarrels within the body, and he talked about the reason why that happens is because we put our desires on the front end and we put God's desires on the back burner. David is setting up this psalm in a, he's, he's thinking through what it means to be a child of God. He's, he's thinking through what all God does for him. Look at what he says in verse 3. He says, though an army encamps against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arises against me, yet I will be confident. L- look at the just confidence in God that David is showing throughout some of the most difficult things that a person or a king of a nation can come against. The number one concern of any king or any ruler is that a foe or a foreign enemy is going to come and encircle your kingdom. That, was, that is always a concern of a leader. And David says, even when that happens, my heart shall not fear. The, the heart, as we know throughout Scripture, is used to describe our inward most being. Writing on this psalm and on this verse particularly, um, in verses 2 and 3, Spurgeon said, God's breath blew them off their legs. This was literally true in the case of our Lord in the garden. When those who came to take him went backward and fell to the ground. It is a prophetic representation of all, of all wrestling believers who, rise from their, who rising from their knees shall by the power of faith throw their foes upon their faces. Spurgeon hits it perfectly that that is what David is trying to show us is that no matter what's against us, God is for us. No matter what's encircling us or no matter what's being brought to us, the Lord gives us the confidence to fight through. The the Lord gives us the ability to fight on. The Coming against us gives us a picture of evildoers not only trying to get us off course, but it's more like they're trying to devour the faithful and remove them from trying to move other people and sharing the faith. John referenced last week the book Screwtape Letters written by C.S. Lewis. And in that, when he went through that book talking about how it's a senior demon writing to a younger demon and the younger demon's human has just come to Christ and I've always heard it said that if the devil can't get you to deny God the devil's going to do everything he can to keep you on the sidelines of the game the devil's going to do everything he can to keep you out of the fight and out of moving on the kingdom if they can keep us scared enough and if they can keep us closed off from the world and try to keep us from sharing our faith then they've succeeded in at least a little bit of keeping the gospel from being spread. But just as David writes about confidence when all these things arise around him, let me remind you of what Paul writes in Romans 8, starting in verse 38. He says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, 
nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. David sets up those three verses, and after he ponders upon the amazingness of God's light and salvation, he comes to verse 4. And in verses 4 through 6, David shows us that we're to rest in the Lord. David shows us how we're to sit and think about who the Lord is. Look at verse 4. It says, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. If you don't get anything else out of this message this morning, I want verse 4 to be etched onto our hearts. Verse 4 is what drew me to this psalm in the first place. Verse 4 is the inspiration behind the entire, not only this entire message, but this entire psalm. There's a shift not only in writing, but there's also a shift in the tone of how David is writing. He, he looks at all that God has done for him. He looks at all that God has done to keep the evildoers away. And he comes and he starts to think, he goes, one thing that I would ask for the Lord David, David becomes engulfed with this idea that we can dwell in the house of the Lord. We, we, we can gaze upon the beauty of God. The amazing thing about this is, is that David shows us that his desires are meeting with the heart of God. David is often called a man after God's own heart, and it's verses like verse 4 that really make that come true that all that David wants in life is to be in the house of the Lord he, he, he not only be in the house of the Lord but he wants to dwell there he wants to literally live in the presence of God he 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 gets this idea of every single thing in him every single thing that he does points him to being in God's presence the idea of having everything else in line with a single goal of getting this done, of, of getting to the heart of who God is, of, of having his desires and his passions line up perfectly. David wants nothing more than to be completely within the presence of God. He, he wants to be where the Lord is. There was a famous writer, Alexander Pope, writing and he says know then thyself presume not God to scan he said the proper study of mankind is man Poe thought it more important for us to learn about ourselves than about God he thought it was more important for us to first learn about who we were and then try and apply that to God Spurgeon responded to this in one of his first sermons that he ever gave. It's one of his first ever published sermons. Spurgeon said, It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. He says, I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. Spurgeon says, The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy... 
which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom we call Father. That is what it means to have our hearts and our desires set upon dwelling in the house of the Lord. When I think of wanting to be in the presence of God, when I think of wanting to dwell in the presence of God, my mind is immediately taken to Exodus chapter 33. And in that, the Lord and Moses are together. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses, being with the Lord, his only request is he pleads with God. He says, please show me your glory. In verse 19, and he said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But God said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. But the Lord, as he had just promised on being gracious to whom I will be gracious, said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Moses is so awestruck by the power of God. He's so awestruck, just as David is, with wanting to be in the presence of the Lord, to, to gaze upon the beauty. Verse 5, David says, For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. And he will lift me high on a rock. He says, and now my head shall be lifted up and my enemies all around me. When, when we look at these three verses where David is pointing us that we need to rest in the promise of dwelling with God. We need to rest. It, it makes me think of what an amazing strong fortress our God is. How, how he points us to come to him and to be in him because he is the rock. He, he tells us, come to this rock. He says, come and anchor your life in this. He says, come and find what you need. He says, because I will protect you. He says, you come to the rock for salvation. He says, you come for the light of who I am. He says, you come and you anchor yourself. And he says, I will protect you. Makes me think of the hymn, Rock of Ages. It says, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. What an amazing picture that our holy God will give us glimpses of himself so that we might know what eternity will look like. Verse 6 goes on to explain how our heads will be lifted above all of our enemies. What's interesting about our heads being lifted is if you look back in verse 5 where he says, He will hide me in the shelter in the day of trouble, and he will conceal me under the cover of his tent. David is exhausting all of the literary words that he has at his disposal to give as much verb usage to describing what God does for us. 
for showing us that he will keep us and protect us and hide us from trouble as it comes. But verse 6, he says, And now my head shall be lifted above my enemies. There's only two things that really can cause us to drop our heads. It's shame and it's fear. The shame of being sinful in the eyes of a holy God and fear as we cower back from what may be lurking around the corner. But David says, because our God is strong and on the throne, he lifts us up so that we, as the choir sang, we look to the majesty of his name. We look to creation as it groans for God, as it, as it beckons us to give praise to the Lord. And then David makes another turn as he continues out in verse 6. And he says, I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. I want to be this excited about God's presence. That's, what I, that, that's where I want all of my, I want all of my energy to go to being so engulfed with the presence of God that I am out of words to describe what it means to be in his, to be in his glory. I, I want to be completely lost for words at who God is. I am waiting expectantly to be in the presence of God. I am... It is... It, I've told this story a billion times. Every time I preach, I feel like I tell this story. The presence of God in my life when I knew he was calling me to ministry was the most overwhelming experience that that was the closest that I can come to being in line with David's desire of having one thing to ask. Being so dependent upon the Lord, being so in awe of God that all that we want is to be in his temple, to be in his shelter, to be concealed under the cover of his tent. And, and it's not just being concealed from, from, from trouble, but it's, it's, it's being concealed from just the everyday anxieties of life. God's not just there for the big things. God's there for the small things. God's not just there when there's a major cat catastrophe in life. God's there when you get annoyed because somebody's sitting at a green light. God's there when somebody has three buggies full at Walmart and is using the self-checkout line. Uh, that is a personal pet peeve of mine. Um, <laughs> But God is there in all things. But we have to be willing and open to what he calls us to do. We have to be, we have to be willing to have shouts of joy and to sing and make melody to the Lord. But David comes with the next turn in this psalm 
in verses 7 through 12. And he has a prayer, and it's a prayer that shows us salvation in the Lord. If you haven't caught on yet with my outline, um, the one thing that I'm wanting us to see is that everything has to come in the Lord. Um, Everything has to come from him. It can't come from us. He starts in verse 7. He says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. He says, You have said, Seek my face. And my heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. David gives a prayer that basically the desires of his heart matches what his mind just put on paper in verses 4 through 6. Because it's very easy to have this head knowledge about who God is and to have this understanding in knowledge about what we should do with God. But it, the greatest distance, the greatest disconnect is that small distance between our hearts and our minds. Because we can have all of the head knowledge that we want about God, but if it's not in our inward being, then it's not who we are. David pleads with the Lord that he be gracious and that he answers him. David is begging God that he hears his cries and he hears his prayers. Sometimes the silence of unanswered prayers speaks louder than when God actually answers the prayer. We can be praying for something to happen. We can be praying for things to come. We can be praying for all these opportunities. And it feels like God is nowhere to be found. I have found in my life that in the stillness and in the quietness of the Lord is that maybe the reason why God's quiet is not because he can't do it, but because it's not what his will is. And he's attempting to realign my heart with what he wants. In verse 8, David shows us that the Lord commands us to seek his face. He commands us to seek who he is. And David says, my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. He, He says that his inward heart is asking to seek the Lord. And then in verses 9 and 10, David goes and he writes in the same style that we see in Psalm 51. In verse 9, David says, Hide not your face from me, turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. Psalm 51, verses 10 through 12, David writes, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. David's taking everything that he's learning from God, and he's pointing it back to what it means to ask for forgiveness for our sins. He's asking God that he doesn't take his face from him, that he doesn't turn away in anger of our sin, but he's, he's asking God to show him the same mercy and the same goodness that we see him show Moses when he allows him to see the backside of his glory. 
He says, cast me not off, forsake me not. It's, it's like that image of having to cast a boat off in the midst of a hurricane because it's going to do more damage to the dock than it, is to, than it is to keep it tied up. He's asking God not to cut us away because we're nothing but a hindrance in our sin to showing the holiness of God. He's, he's asking God to not forsake us. In verse 10 he says, for my, mother, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take care of me. David shows that even in the most in the deepest relationship between a child and a parent, that even if there is a breakdown in that relationship, the Lord is able and the Lord is willing to fulfill all of that that we need. He says, the Lord will take me in. It's not that the Lord, he doesn't say the Lord could. He says that the Lord will take me in because God is our good, good father. God is our salvation. Verse 11, he says, Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. David is all about and all about showing how God is able to deliver us from the enemy. He, he's showing us that God is that straight and narrow path that we see in the Gospels. It's so difficult to stay on that path because of things coming and pulling us off and moving us and trying to get us to fall. He says, give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witness have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. He is asking in verse 12, he asked, he asked in verses 11 and 12, he asked for three things. Verse 11, the first thing he asked is to be taught. He asks us to be led, and in verse 12, he asks that God not give him up. Three very simple requests that we all should ask God daily, that God would teach us what he would have us do, that he would teach us what our desires are to be, that he would lead us on that path so that we may be not pulled by our enemies, and that he would not give us up to their will, that we would be so, we would have such a desire for the will of God that God doesn't give us up, as Paul writes in Romans, to worldly passions and desires. 13 and, verses 13 and 14, the last two verses, it's very simple. He wants us to trust in the Lord. He wants us to trust on God's timing. He wants us to trust that God has a plan for us. David writes, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. I'm one of those people that if you tell me something more than once and if I see something written more than once, it's probably rather important that I pay attention to it. And David writes twice in one verse, in verse 14, that we're to wait for the Lord. In verse 13, he shows us that because of everything that he's written before, because of who God is, because of the one thing that we're to do, 
He says, because of all that, he believes that he shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. But in verse 14, he says, he's basically saying, until then, until we look upon the goodness of the Lord, we're to wait for him. It's like, as in, it's written in Isaiah 40, 31, it says, but those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, and they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The, this idea of waiting on the Lord, it's not a passive sitting around waiting for God to show up and do something. It's, it's that idea that we're to actively seek the Lord and wait for him to show us what it is. Spurgeon writes again on, these last, on this last verse, he says, Wait at his door with prayer. Wait at his foot with humility. Wait at his table with service. Wait at his window with expectancy. We're not to just sit and be like, all right, I'm just going to sit here and wait for the Lord to tell me what I need to do. Sometimes God comes first and tells us what we need to do, but most of the time we've got to seek the will of God. I think you 